Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samhasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samhasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samhasambuddhasa Udang saranam gachami Dhamang saranam gachami Sanang saranam gachami Dutyanti Udang saranam gachami Dutyanti Dhamam saranam gachami Dutyanti sanam saranam gachami Tatyanti bhulam saranam gachami Tatyanti dhamam saranam gachami Tatyanti Sangam Saranam Gachami. This completes the going to the three refuges. Anyati Pada Ramani Sakapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from harming or destroying living beings. Adina dana Brahmani sakapadam samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Kamesu michachara Brahmani sakapadam samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musavada Brahmani Sakapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from wrong speech. Sura Mreya Maja Paditana Brahmani Sakapadam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants that cause carelessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to act with loving-kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these ten precepts, Virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. 
Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Thank you very much and good evening. Everyone is well, free from ill will, free from suffering, filled with loving kindness. We are doing that. Yes. Wonderful. Good. So, what should we talk about? Can I have some questions? Some things, some thoughts that you may have had from the things that we've talked about previously. Yes. Um, regarding lust, and uh, I was just wondering, as far as you know, being married, the householder's life, I mean, in any sexual relationship, there's going to be lust, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, where's how do you find that balance? I guess is my question, as far as. Mm-hmm. Being in a, in a functioning relationship. It's, it's by making use of the opportunity that's presented to, uh, through mindfulness, to truly understand the nature, uh, the nature of desire and the nature of love, and to explore and develop that. Um, in a sexual relationship, lust gives rise to uh, the selfish component. We wish to gratify ourselves and please ourselves. But it's the most interesting thing because there are two people involved, both seeking uh, uh, the sensual pleasure, and so there is as much opportunity to give as there is to receive. There's also the element of mental happiness and the different ways that happiness comes about uh, and the relationship between sensual pleasure and mental happiness. So in, uh, in lovemaking, in a relationship between a couple, there's a tremendous opportunity for uh, uh, discovery, growth, spiritual development. Uh, for example, in the process of making love, uh, you have the experience of seeing the nature of desire and how, how it changes, the nature of the mental states that are produced, uh, and, uh, and how they evolve. There is, um, there is a delighting in the desire itself. If you think about it, uh, it's not 
it, it's uh, not just that you have a desire for the pleasure that comes from uh, sex or anything else for that matter. And everything that it, it's like sex is a concentrated crucible that allows you to examine the things that are true of everything else throughout all the rest of your life. But they're just they're very very concentrated and very focused. Um, we there is a pleasure that comes from delighting in desire itself. If you think about it, right? We uh, we will cause ourselves to. Uh, become desirous to and, and become filled with desire just to enjoy the pleasure that the state of desire elicits, even even though we know that the desire may not be satisfied. Right? So, and that's true of not just uh, sexual desire, but you know, why why go window shopping? <laughs> right? Why why tantalize yourself with? Um, thoughts of things that you uh, will never have. But there, there's a certain pleasure that comes from it. So you can explore all the different phases of, of craving and desire as they develop as a part of that. You can practice mindfulness. Uh, the joy and excitement that uh, are associated with uh, making love are very, very much like the joy and excitement that comes uh, in profound states of concentration and meditation. The main way they different is in in their causes and what causes them to come about. Another thing that you can discover there is uh, there is that post-orgasmic state of contentedness where you. There is the pleasure that comes from the end of desire, from the satisfaction of desire, the contentedness, the fulfillment. That that pleasure uh, is revealed in its own right when the intensity of the joy and excitement that preceded that state has passed away. And it's there available to be examined and understood. And that is like the sukha that develops in very profound meditative states. Uh, having, having let go of uh, joy, then there is the happiness and contentment. And that's exactly the same uh, thing. And so you can, the, the way to approach uh, the sexual part of a life as a lay person in a relationship is as a sadhana, as a practice, meditation. Practicing mindfulness, examining your own mind, discovering the nature of craving and desire, and all the other things that go with it. I've just spoken of the positive sides of it, but as you know, there uh, it's not always that way. There are other... Uh, being one of the most powerful of our emotions and motivations, it elicits 
the full range of emotional states and reactions in one way or another at different times. They're all there available to these to discover. The other hand, the, on the other side of it is, it is an opportunity for developing loving kindness and compassion. It's especially an opportunity for practicing uh, replacing yourself with another, seeing yourself in someone else and seeing that other person in yourself. This exchange of awareness and consciousness through, through, uh, through shared experience, through shared desire, through shared suffering, through the, the uh, shared nature of the whole process. It is an opportunity to see beyond our ordinary way of looking and perceiving at the world and at other persons. Because you see, your partner can become quite easily and readily in your mind in those circumstances can become a divine being. Uh, and you can practice seeing that person uh, as divine, as, as a Buddha, or see their Buddha nature. And then you can see yourself in the same way especially if, if both partners uh, uh, have the same understanding, then you can see each other as, as bodhisattvas, you know, as uh, ultimate Buddhas, as divine beings. Yeah. Why do we practice that only during sex? And why, why can that well, easily happen outside of sex? Yeah, we don't. What we do is, if you can learn to practice that, in any way, at any time, and you should practice it in every way, at every time. But this is an unusually good opportunity to do that, because the emotions and the mental states that arise are very conducive to having that kind of of, of view and uh, perception. So it's just not... How come come it's easy doing um, there's a lot of affection. Yes, there's a lot of affection. That's right. There is. Yeah. And uh, uh, for, I, I think as you, you probably know yourself, the experience opens your mind up to to seeing in that way. So that not only is there the selfish desire for gratification, but there is a lot of genuine love and appreciation, sensitivity. Um, to the other person, there's as a matter. Of, there's a tendency to see the absolute best qualities in, in the person if you if you give it even half a, an effort. Well, that's what automatically happens when we meet somebody and we uh, we are attracted to them and we start to fall in love with them. Is in our mind they become the most wonderful person in the world, right? And that comes back even even when you've been married. 20 years, 30 years, that can come back, uh, uh, you know, over and over again. 
seems contradicting to think of Buddha as having sex. <laughs> You're right. It does. But you don't have to think of Buddha having sex in order to see the Buddha nature of, of, of divine qualities in another human being and in, in, in any circumstance. It's a, it is a very, very powerful experience, so you make use of it. That's what I'm saying. Is, is I just give you some suggestions, but you know, you say to yourself, all right, this is one of the most uh, powerful experiences that uh, uh, human beings have in the normal course of their existence. And how can I use this as a, as a form of Dharma practice? And as you know, in the Vajrayana, this is, uh, this is developed uh, to a very high degree. That, uh, and that's the aspect of it there that uh, I, I didn't address before, but uh, you can transform your desire. You transform your desire for sexual pleasure to be a desire for uh, enlightenment and liberation. And you can transform the desire, the sexual desire that manifests in the specific way that it does in a relationship between two people as a desire for the liberation of all beings, as a sincere, from the heart uh, experience of, of bodhicitta, the desire, the desire for the uh, complete and permanent liberation from suffering of all beings. Uh, transform, transform those simple uh, animal desires into the most, uh, into the highest and most div- divine form. Yeah. Would would, a, would you think that uh, a couple can exist pretty happily without sex? Why not? I mean, could, right. could two, any two people exist happily without sex? Because, uh, because earlier this gentleman, uh, I don't know his name, I think, uh, oh Ben, um, he, he said that, you know, as a, as a functioning relationship. Mm-hmm. So therefore, another possibility is not to have sex. That's true. You could have, uh, be in a relationship. Uh, this is the relationship that uh, Gandhi had, Mahatma Gandhi in uh, uh, the latter part of his life with his wife. He chose to be celibate and she agreed. And uh, it would seem that they had a very, very powerful relationship. What was his motivation? He's not a Buddhist. He's not a... It, it's, uh, it's very... It was the same thing. Religion, oh, okay. it, he may not particularly follow the Buddha Dharma, but he was following a Dharma nevertheless. I see. So. I have a question. Well, yeah, let's see. Peggy, please. Peggy first? See. Okay. Peggy and yeah, Peggy first. Like, um, like when you reach like the 10th um, stage of meditation or the mm-hmm. higher level you get, doesn't the pleasure, like it feels like a hundred times better than sex? <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> 
the uh, the Piki Sukha, the, the joy and happiness of the jhanas, uh, are sometimes described that way. Uh, I don't think they, that's necessarily an accurate description for everyone, but they are of the same nature. You know, the 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 the, the joy joy is joy and happiness is happiness. Uh, they are very intense. Uh, the main difference is how they come about, and uh, I have, uh, you know, well, there's no question that the intensity is sometimes in meditation can uh, greatly exceed that which it often does in, in uh, normal sexual relationships. But on the other hand, if you make your sexual relationship into a meditation, then no longer is there uh, uh, necessarily that kind of distinction to be made. So. Oh, so, that's, so you can have sex and reach that stage mm-hmm. of jhana? Yeah. Oh. Right. Uh, with, with a uh, with a cooperative partner and some degree of practice, you can be very one-pointed, very single-pointed and concentrated when making love. So you can you can actually uh, experience simultaneously the uh, the joy and pleasure that uh, is uh, inherent in sex itself together with the joy and pleasure that comes from very powerful states of concentration. So. But like with sex, like, um, like, don't you like, do you crave for, like, isn't there like a craving though? Whereas in meditation, there's this content, contentment? Uh, that is, uh, in, in meditation, you move beyond the intense joy to the satisfied state, and a person can become attached to that. Of course, you can become attached to absolutely any kind of pleasure. So, but the antidote to becoming attached—I mean, it's some, sometimes you'll. Uh, Pick up books about uh, meditation, and you'll find meditation teachers warning you against uh, practicing samatha and warning you against entering the jhanas because uh, the pleasure is better than sex, and you become attached to it, and that's all you want to do. <laughs> you know, but more likely, if you if you have if you have uh, arrived at that point, uh, have developed strong mindfulness and have an understanding of the dharma, you are going to recognize the nature of the attachment, even though attachment may arise, and you'll recognize it, and, uh, you know, you probably not become uh, addicted to, to jhanas. It's possible that you would, but, yeah. So, what we were talking about earlier about pain and pleasure, mm-hmm. as sensations being inevitable, uh, and the suffering that may come with it as 
it's not necessarily being inevitable. So it's sort of a similar thing that the sexual experiences can be experienced as a pleasurable, pure sensation, mm -hmm. as long as we approach it in a proper way. It, it won't necessarily have to bring with it all of the excessive baggage and attachment that it often does. Is that sort of That's right. There's no reason why it necessarily has to. You see, it's it's the ignorance that feeds the craving. And if you're approaching it with mindfulness, so that wisdom is developing, then instead of ignorance, and that's that's the difference. And you had a question. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I have a big problem with, with uh, Vaj Vajrayana. Vajrayana. Vajrayana practice. Mm -hmm. the, because in Sutra, especially the early Sutra, I don't think Buddha teach that. Buddha absolutely did not. The Vajrayana tantric practices actually were adapted from uh, uh, northern Indian yeah. tantric practices yeah. that were yeah. completely non-Buddhist. Yes. And that happened uh, quite a long time after the time of the Buddha, probably uh, roughly a thousand years or so afterwards. Not only that, they were adapted in different forms. The actual uh, uh, sexual tantra is only one, one form of the tantra. The most basic form of the tantra is seeing your, uh, your partner, uh, your teacher, and ultimately all beings as divine beings. That's the guru yoga part of of, uh, of tantra is seeing your teacher as uh, as a, uh, a an embodiment of perfect wisdom, and uh, seeing uh, seeing your partner in the same way, seeing every person as a Buddha who is teaching you in some way. Then the other part of that is learning to see yourself as a Buddha, to discover your own Buddha nature through cultivating the awareness of the qualities of, uh, of Buddhahood. And so uh, a form of Tantra that is, the, is not sexual and doesn't involve uh, any sort of uh, physical contact with other people is to visualize a bodhisattva or a Buddha, a deity, to visualize it, and to practice that visualization as a meditation and until that being becomes real to you. With all, and not just, not just an appearance, it's, it's very important that you're not, you're not meditating to create only a visual appearance of a bodhisattva, but rather as a part of your meditation, you uh, you visualize all of the qualities of wisdom and loving kindness and compassion that are a part of uh, that nature as a uh, as a bodhisattva or as a Buddha or or as uh, an appropriate being for such a visualization. Once you've done that, then the next stage is that you imagine you become that being yourself.
you, and and that's the completion stage of the tantra, where you have visualized it so strongly that that now you can bring these qualities in and you can see yourself and uh, uh, in in that way manifest the same wisdom and uh, uh, compassion. So you see. The, a tantra, a tantric practice that would actually involve uh, uh, being with a partner and, uh, and practicing physically represents only a very small part of what's of the Vajrayana. But you're absolutely right. None of these practices, absolutely none of them, originated with the historic Buddha, and they they, they came much much later. So. Would you say that kind of practice is kind of dangerous? Yes, it's very dangerous because, uh, you know, if you, as, as a matter of fact, in the teachings that uh, uh, usually until you've achieved samatha and until you're a stream winner, you should not begin to practice tantra. You can learn the basic visualization meditations, but before then, the problem with practicing Tantra is the danger of the tremendous self-delusion. So in that case, why, why a, a, a stream uh, inter-practice that kind of, uh, I mean... Uh, because it's, it is, uh, it's unknown. You know, I'm not an expert on this, right? Okay, so I can only tell you what little tiny bit I know from looking through the window a long ways away, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, it's because this is understood to be a an admittedly dangerous but very, very rapid way to progress through all of the stages of enlightenment. Uh, the idea is to become... Uh, to become not just an arahat, but uh, one who uh, an arahat who has the power to uh, lead many many beings to enlightenment. Okay. See, this is, this is the uh, it takes a little. <laughs> Let me just explain this a, a, a little bit more. Every arahat is a Buddha, and the Buddha was an arahat. But the historical Buddha was a, a special Buddha. He's called a Samasambuddha. And that's because he had spent many eons perfecting his virtue so that when in his final lifetime, he attained Buddhahood, he had the ability to uh, understand and to teach and to teach the Dharma in such a way that it turned the wheel of Dharma and kept the, started the wheel of Dharma turning in the world, carrying down to this time. And uh, someone who has not spent all of those uh, eons of lifetime in preparation can become an arhat, but they might not have the skill or the wisdom 
to teach in that way. Right? There were there were many arhats in the time of the Buddha, but not all of them. As a matter of fact, none of them were samasam Buddhas. None of them had the, had that tremendous refinement of ability and wisdom, compassion and understanding necessary to to set in motion the wheel of Dharma in such a way that it would carry through total time one. No. And so there is the tradition, and this, this tradition is from the time of the Buddha, that, that this has happened over and over again, that periodically when the Dharma is, becomes lost from the world, then a new Samasam Buddha appears and who once again establishes the Dharma in the world. Uh, and that the Buddha that we know it was had in the lifetime, the final lifetime of the previous Samasam Buddha, he had made a vow that he would be a Samasam Buddha. And therefore he spent all those, rather than becoming an Arhat, he spent all those uh, uh, eons, those hundreds of thousands of eons, perfecting himself so that he could become the next Sanasam Buddha. And it is said that when, when uh, that kind of bodhisattva, uh, that what they do is that there is a special uh, heaven in which once they have completed the process of perfecting themselves and they're ready for their final uh, the, their final emanation and, uh, as a Buddha and to once again set the Dharma wheel turning that they reside in uh, this particular heaven where they await uh, the appropriate time in one of the infinite number of worlds where uh, the, t- the time is right for a new Buddha to appear, and then they are born there, and then they are the Samasam Buddha who does their work. It is said that there is now waiting that, that the Amitabha Buddha, or Amida Buddha, Amitabha, is, uh, no, 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 not Amida, sorry, Maitreya. Maitreya. Maitreya, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the is the next Samasam Buddha. And who, he's the coming Buddha. He's the one that's going to come uh, uh, next. So anyway, this is this uh, idea then. In the Mahayana, it said that, well, why make your goal just for your own enlightenment, just to become an arahat? Make it your goal to become a Samasam Buddha and to work for the enlightenment of all beings and to become that kind of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva who, who uh, is uh, striving for complete enlightenment so that, they can, uh, so that they can help bring all sentient beings to, uh, I don't know, to their final liberation. Which is a, a, a wonderful Mahayana idea. 
But I do have a problem with that idea because in the original sutra, it it, it seems that Buddha didn't teach that way, and mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, I, I I don't know. I think even you become arahat, uh, even the uh, the stream winner, mm -hmm. um, you have to come back seven times. Mm -hmm. I mean, the seven times it's enough for a teacher. A good teacher help lots of people. Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, since the criteria become enlightenment, mm -hmm. uh, you have to develop that kind of uh, mm -hmm. loving kindness yeah. and total compassion. Yeah. So I do believe that even arahat or any uh, stream uh, winner uh, in. Uh, a, a string inter, how do you say that? String, a string mentor. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, they they all compassionate. I believe they all, if they have a chance, they all wanted to teach and help. They are mm -hmm. compassionate being. So they, okay. from uh, from my uh, point of view, I think they already mm -hmm. are Bodhisattva. I I agree with you, and as a matter of fact, that is. Uh, that is one of the uh, uh, doctrines that's taught within the Theravada. You see, there's these there's these things between these different schools or these different groups. Which one you believe or you practice? <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment. But let me just first point out the situation is that we have many Buddhists who uh, are not fully enlightened and maybe not enlightened at all. And so we find Buddhists saying and thinking and teaching things that we sometimes might look at and they don't, they don't, uh, they don't really seem the way they should be. For example, you have, in the Mahayana, you often hear the teaching that, that uh, the, the Theravada is sometimes referred to as Hinayana, a lesser, lesser vehicle which actually historically is not correct because the Hinayana refers to, uh, to uh, schools of Buddhism prior to the Mahayana but after they'd already separated from Theravada. But anyway, they will refer to them as Hinayana and the lesser vehicle and they will say, well, it's selfish to want to become an Arhat because it says that, uh, that when you become an Arhat, that is your last birth. Right? And if you selfishly become an arhat, then you're liberated, but then what good is that to all other beings everywhere else? Right? <laughs> and what's funny about this is, okay, what is, what is an arhat is somebody who has completely translated or transcended anything that could possibly be called selfishness in, right. in any right. sense. Yeah, so it's, it's not right in some sense. So, Anyway, we have many different people coming up with different kinds of doctrines and explanations and beliefs and claims and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's, that's the world uh, of Buddhism that we really find here. Uh, I, I, from my point of view, I think any person who has attained uh, even the level of stream winner 
has uh, a kind of compassion that is not possible for somebody who hasn't had that. And as they proceed through the higher stages of enlightenment, that compassion can only increase. And uh, many of the things that might be said about our hearts and what they do and what they can't do are really ignorant and naive speculation. And most of them are presupposing views that are already uh, clearly stated in the sutras as wrong views. The view that a person who selfishly becomes an arhat because he is not reborn ceases to exist in some sense is over and over again in the sutras you know it's clearly stated that you cannot say of a Buddha when they die as the question was asked what happens to Buddha when he dies does he exist does he not exist does he both exist and not exist or does he neither exist or not exist and the answer to all those questions is no basically because it's an ignorant question uh, based on a wrong understanding of uh, it's actually based on the uh, unenlightened understanding that uh, the Buddha is a a person with a real a, a real personal self that something has to happen to in those terms at, at the time they die. So there's already in that kind of discussion they say misunderstanding. So. Because yesterday you said that the Buddha actually, I mean enlightened actually is not a thing. The, the Buddha nature, emptiness, enlightenment, nirvana, is really is not a thing. So, yeah. so uh, anyway, <clears throat> I think it is uh, before enlightenment, it is a wonderful thing to uh, help to motivate yourself in your practice to hold the thought that the only way that you can really help anyone else is to strive diligently for your own enlightenment so that then you will be able to help lead others on the path. And then after your enlightenment, you will have even deeper and more profound compassion and understanding of how to do this. And worry about what to do when you become an arahat. (laughs) I totally agree. But in the meantime, to hold that aspiration, the the bodhicitta, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, the the bodhicitta, the the wish for enlightenment for the sake of all, the wish for your own enlightenment for the sake of the enlightenment of all beings. A wonderful thing. And... uh, it will help to carry you through the moments when uh, your selfish desire for your own enlightenment isn't strong enough to make you stay with the practice. Well, don't do it for yourself, do it for all beings. And it will help to remind you over and over again to keep an attitude of compassion in your heart and to cultivate compassion, loving kindness to remember 
to see, understand the people that you see as every person you see is yourself in another form, experiencing suffering. Uh, trapped themselves by their own desire and aversion. And because of their ignorance and desire and aversion, doing and saying things that are harmful to themselves and others and that are creating bad karma for themselves. That way, you see somebody that does something that offends you, you don't become angry with them. You feel compassion, like, oh, this person, they don't understand. And it is because of their suffering that they're doing this and they don't realize that the thing they're doing is only going to create more suffering for themselves in the future. So it is that, it is that bodhicitta and the bodhisattva attitude that I will work tirelessly every moment to achieve enlightenment, not just for my own sake, mm-hmm. but so that I can help all sentient beings mm-hmm. in some way. And if you ever philosophically get troubled by the idea that indeed in the sutras it says if you become um, that if you become a Buddha, if you become an Arhat, that you will not be reborn, then you can just uh, recognize that uh, that there is a doctrine that says the Buddha has uh, a kind of body called the Nirmanakaya or the emanation body so that even though the Buddha as a person is no longer on the wheel of samsara and reborn over and over again into suffering, a Buddha can appear in any world at any time in a form appropriate to, to teach and to help and to guide other sentient beings. So, like I say, the main thing is become an arhat and worry about what to do afterwards. But in case you start becoming worried that it's perhaps you shouldn't become an arhat because you won't be able to return, just say, well, if I become an arhat and then at the end of, uh, of my human existence, at the end of that life, then I will continue to return to a uh, hundred thousand worlds, at least, okay, in whatever form is necessary to help teach and guide people until every sentient being has come to enlightenment. I never worry about that. Okay. okay. <laughs> because Buddha is not there, but you are sitting there teaching us. So okay. it's very positive. <laughs> and so each of us, each of us can be the next Buddha. Each of us can be Maitreya. Good, good. Yeah. Yes, Jun. So you mentioned Jhana. I would like to switch topic from last jhana, to, uh-huh. to, to Jhana. Um, I would like to hear you talk, uh, explain or uh, talk about Jhana or uh, absorption mm-hmm. and uh, uh, their relationship or how important they are for enlightenment. Um, I listened to Ayakima's early, she had a talk in Australia, that was in Mm -hmm. Mm mid-90s. The way she talked about was that um, jhana was something controversial, was something kept as a secret. So after, I I now, how many years, 12 years after 
that mm-hmm. time. I feel like people talk about jhanas quite a lot these days. So I wonder. Yes, people are talking about jhana quite a lot these days, and uh, uh, it did become quite controversial. Just to take you back to the original uh, teachings of the Buddha the, in, the, in the Pali Sutras and also in the Chinese Agamas um, uh, in, in all of the reporting of the sutras what you find is the jhanas are discussed over and over and over again you know uh, you, uh, if you pick up a volume of the sutras you cannot read very many pages without coming to a reference to the jhanas. And so there can be absolutely no question that uh, the jhanas are uh, an extremely important part of the teaching of the Buddha and the practice leading to enlightenment. And uh, so it can be puzzling why it has, uh, uh, why in oh, uh, the last hundred years, it's uh, jhana has become controversial. <laughs> but I think part of it is that an understanding of jhana and of the practices leading to jhana uh, was uh, very nearly lost at some point. Uh, we do find, uh, you know, in, in the uh, Mahayana teachings, which are in Sanskrit, uh, it's not jhana, it's uh, the corresponding Sanskrit word dhyana that is used. And sometimes the word jhana or dhyana can be taken to mean meditation. But uh, probably the best translation is absorption. It's referring to a very, very profound state of concentration. And uh, the jhanas, basically there are four jhanas, and they are very clearly defined and described in, in the sutras, and over and over again. Um, there's not a lot of detail, there's not enough detail to prevent there being a lot of disagreement as to exactly what level of concentration constitutes jhanas. And uh, there is enough unclarity to make it possible for people to adopt different points of view as to their relative importance. Uh, From the descriptions, in the sutras, it would seem that jhanas are a profound state of concentration, but not something that is out of the reach of most people if they practice. I would agree with that completely. Um, the, I learned to practice samatha and do jhanas in a very deep kind of jhana that I think uh, not everyone can do. But I've since discovered that there are uh, that you can enter these jhanas in lighter in, in 
yes, in lighter stages of concentration that everyone can attain to. And so it would seem, what I would say is that while it might be possible to achieve stream entry without ever having uh, experienced even the light jhanas, that uh, to continue, based on what it says in the sutras, uh, and based on what I know from my personal experience, it would not really be possible to go beyond that without developing a particular kind of concentration and doing the practices associated with the jhanas. I think that the jhanas are necessary for the higher stages of the path. Now, where a lot of this controversy comes from is that there is the, the dry vipassana method that was, de- that was developed in, uh, in Burma uh, and uh, spread to Thailand and, and Ceylon and had become very popular and then was brought to the United States back in the 70s by students of the, these teachers. And the main forms of, of, of the vipassana that you, of the dry vipassana that you encounter are uh, uh, that 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 was originally taught by Mahasi Sayadaw. Yeah. <laughs> and there's many sort of variations on that that now spread around. And the other is that was uh, originally taught by Uba Kin, and then uh, Goenka has become perhaps the main one that's teaching that. There is even though a difference between these two because in the Goenka method. There is a practice of concentration, yes. but it's not to the development of samatha, and it's definitely not to the point of jhana. But it seems that people do uh, achieve stream entry using these practices. And so it seems that jhana is not necessary to achieve stream entry. But if you look carefully at these practices, to achieve stream entry, you still have to achieve the level of concentration that's called samatha, or access concentration. The level of concentration that corresponds... Basically, you have to achieve the level of concentration that corresponds the tenth stage that I gave you before uh, the first stage of enlightenment will occur. The samatha... The description of the tenth stage that I gave you, that is the fully developed samatha. That is where you your power of concentration is such that you can uh, watch the arising and passing away phenomena with no distraction, absolutely no even subtle vestige of mind wandering. And no dullness. You can see very clearly that you, the phenomena as it arises and passes away. You are in a state of profound tranquility and you have complete equanimity towards the pleasurable and unpleasurable qualities of the phenomena that you observe. And in the vipassana, dry vipassana tradition, this is called... Uh, the knowledge of equanimity towards formation. 
and it is the stage of meditative concentration that you have to achieve and that you have to be able to sustain in order what what follows upon that then in very quick succession uh, are are some stages that in a matter of a few moments lead to uh, the first stage of enlightenment but in order to become enlightened you have to achieve that and so no matter what tradition you look at samatha is necessary uh, for enlightenment now there are some teachers and traditions that say that that the uh, that what's achieved in the dry insight is not even real uh, it's not even really the first stage of enlightenment so I don't you know don't worry I'm telling you don't worry about that that's yeah, because from my uh, very shallow experience do Mahashi's retreat, I don't think I can do Mahashi's style because it made me very um, aggressive, mm-hmm. make me want uh, controlling. controlling, you know, and that's totally against uh, meditation. So I don't mm-hmm. think I can do that. I think that I, I I I agree with you that Mahashi method is not for everyone. Uh, uh, but at the same time, there seem to be quite a few people who have achieved at, at least uh, some level of uh, awakening. Well, some level of awakening, but not enlightenment. Well, I would be willing to say that they have uh, achieved uh, that they've achieved enlightenment at the first stage of enlightenment with that method. You mean use that kind of method? Mm-hmm. They yeah. can still do it. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I think these people that have achieved higher stages of enlightenment using the, the Mahasi method, but because that school insists that, uh, you know, they, they deny the, the value of concentration. So even when they develop concentration, they say, well, no, this is not really samatha. Uh, and likewise, uh, they say, you know, as a matter of fact, in the sutras, uh, the uh, the experience of enlightenment, which is called uh, path attainment or maga, is called the supra mundane jhana. It's called it's called a kind of jhana, and the subsequent experience uh, experience a person has uh, of fruition or, or pala is also called the supra mundane jhana. So, if you go strictly by the sutras, uh, everyone has experienced jhana. When they, uh, when they achieve the first stage of enlightenment. Now even somebody who achieves the first stage with the Mahasi method must, uh, uh, you know, if, if they have any hope of, of going for, further, <coughs> they must uh, practice what's called palasamapadi, which means they continuously re-experience the fruition consciousness, which is a supramundane jhana, and which is a jhana practice. But they will tell you that our school doesn't do jhana and we don't believe jhana is necessary. But they do jhana in order to achieve the second stage of the path. So, you know, there, I, I just finished reading uh, a book that's newly published. That's uh, called, uh, the name of it is, is, is Samatha. And it compares and discusses uh, this controversy about whether, whether jhana is necessary or not for enlightenment, and the, all of the many different ideas of what constitutes jhana and, and what is uh, uh, 
and uh, it includes some interviews with various teachers. What is remarkable about that is that this book has been written, and that this, all this controversy and discussion is coming out into the open, and these arguments and disagreements. These are opinions. These are egos and opinions. That's what they are. They are attachments to a particular school and a teaching. You know, my school and my teaching says this, and then I'll find any way that I can make the argument that says that what my school says is right and what your school says is wrong. So, very, very petty. <laughs> yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah, I want to ask any of you what, what means the, what is the Chinese word of Mahasi? Mahashi. Mahashi. Neiguan. Oh, okay. Neiguan. Okay. I just translated it because yeah. she. But see what the the Mahasi, uh, the Mahasi teaching is based. Interestingly enough, they, I think there's only one, or maybe uh, at, at most maybe two or three in the uh, uh, sutras and the Pitakas references to any kind of dry insight. Whereas there's literally thousands of references to jhanas and the sutras. But uh, the other, but the main thing that the Mahasi method and that approach is based on, is a commentary to the sutras that was written uh, about 1,300 years later, I believe it was, something like that, uh, about seven, 700 uh, in the uh, uh, 7th or 8th century of, of the uh, current era. So a long, long time after the time of the Buddha, by uh, a monk by the name of Buddha Gosa, and that book is called the Visuti Maga, or the Path of Purification. Absolutely wonderful book. I've worn out two copies of it. Tremendous information, but it prevent, presents a very different view of uh, a, a completely different view of meditation and uh, jhanas as compared to the sutras. Uh, the Visuti Maga in, in the sutras. Uh, insight and concentration are never separated from each other. They're always together. And jhana and enlightenment are never separated from each other. Jhana is always discussed in terms of the achievement of enlightenment. And references to the uh, attainment of enlightenment often include references to the jhana, so they're never separated. In this book, in this commentary that was written, as I say, about 1300 years later, uh, concentration is completely separated from uh, vipassana practice, and it's made. Uh, uh, we don't even know whether Buddha Gosa intended it to be interpreted that way, but subsequently, it was interpreted that well, these are two separate practices, and you can do one, you can do samatha first, and then you can do vipassana. Or you can just start out doing vipassana, which is the dry vipassana, the, the, like the Mahasi. We don't even know that. Uh, it may be that just Buddha Gosa just thought, well, how am I going to describe this? So and he just said, well, I'll divide the practice up and I'll discuss this whole aspect of it by itself and this whole aspect of it by itself. It's not even known that he was saying that these are two separate practices. But it's been come to be widely believed by in certain circles that this is a commentary saying that concentration practice and, and uh, insight practice are separate. 
There are two different practices. And from my point of view, uh, that's that's crazy. It's like saying walking on right leg is. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, if you want to take up exercise, you can learn to run on your right leg, or you can learn to run on your left leg. <laughs> or you can first learn to run on your right leg, and then later learn to run on your left leg. I don't see how it's possible. It doesn't make no sense to me. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. But I'm, I'm I'm telling you that this is this is a view that's held, and it's a view that that's argued. And it's a view that is defended with some by some very intelligent people with some very uh, strong arguments that you know that there is a lot of uh, uh, there is a lot of reason behind that. Yeah. But do they do meditation? I doubt it. <laughs> yes, some of, well, Masi certainly did meditation. And yeah. Many of these people uh, do meditation, but but. Uh, but if you do meditation. How can you not to know that the samadhi and the pasana they are they are together? Well, I, that's what I don't understand either. And I have some very dear friends who have trained in the Mahasi method, and I have very long uh, conversations with them, and uh, uh, we write things back and forth. And to me, it seems very often that. They go out of their way to interpret language and words in such a way so that they can continue to say. But even there, I would say that they uh, they no longer say that as much. They you know they they acknowledge as well. Anyway, the other important difference with the between the sutras and the Vasudhi Maga is that the Vasudhi Maga uh, presents a very very deep profound kind of jhana, which is a very extremely powerful training. But in the Vasudhi Maga, rather than saying, this is jhana, and this jhana can be accessed uh, at uh, lighter or moderate or very deep levels of concentration, in the Vasudhi Maga, the presentation is that the deepest jhana is the only true jhana, no other, no, there, nothing else is jhana. And because this is something that in, even in the Vasudhi Maga, it says that probably only one in 10,000 monks in a monastery can achieve this jhana. It's that it's that deep and it's that difficult. And it says there, right there, that this this is the only true jhana, but only one in ten thousand monks is going to be able to achieve this. Well, you can see if that gets to be said as the standard for jhana, people stop trying to achieve jhana, right? And that happened, and that's why all the uh, the practice of jhana was almost lost because of that. Uh, is that true that uh, in um, uh, Burma, the Paul Sanskrit so Paul, pa- pa- he's he te- teaching that method, right? He teaches the deep jhana, uh, the, uh, the deep jhana. According um, to this. According to the Vasudhi Maga, yeah. Ayakima teaches the uh, light jhana. Ayakima. Yes. Okay. And um, Ajahn Brahma Vamso teaches something that in some way sounds like the light jhanas, but in some way he you know, he teaches the jhana and he says that his students uh, become totally unaware of any anything around them. He even tells a story that one of his students was in meditation and uh, I guess his wife uh, thought he uh, had died or something. She called the ambulance, they took him to the hospital, uh, they couldn't find a heartbeat, so they used uh, defibrillators. 
and he was just in in that deep of a concentration. Yes, yes, yeah. You know, so right. um, uh, Ajahn Brahma Vamsa's jhana doesn't really correspond to any any other teaching that you'll find the Sudhi Maga or sutras or anywhere else. It's something that is, uh, he is the only source I know of a jhana that fits that particular description. And on the one hand, he presents it as being um, as easily accessible or almost as easily accessible as the light jhanas that Ayakima uh, and now Ayakima's uh, successor is Lee Brasington who teaches the same uh, so uh, he Ajahn Brahm says that the jhanas that he teaches are easy to achieve but then at the same time he says they have this same quality of being uh, of having absolutely no awareness of the body, which is what is characteristic of the uh, deep jhanas of the of the Vasudhi Maga. And in those deep jhanas, uh, the really the definition of the jhana in the Vasudhi Maga is that the mind is completely withdrawn from the senses. And I'll tell you, in that jhana, you know, uh, you you are really, your mind is really withdrawn from the senses, but it's not, it's not like Ajahn Ramavamsa in that jhana. If somebody came and shook my shoulder really hard, I would come out of the jhana. Or if somebody came up and went like that next to my ear, I would come out of the jhana. So, uh, but, but he's, but anyway, it's a deep jhana, right? But is it fair to say that for a beginner, uh, these teachers, uh, Ayakima, Ajahn Brahm, uh, for beginners, these are very good teachers, and the difference only shows up when you enter into deeper yeah. stages. All, see, all of these teachers, all of these method, methods will give you some tools to work with, and if you use them, you'll definitely be able to, uh, you'll, you'll be able to achieve the uh, uh, results that that these teachers are are offering you, or at least in the case of Ajahn Brahmavamsa, you'll at least be able to, uh, as I understand it, I mean, I've never met him, let alone practiced with him. I practiced with Dee Brasington. I can't guarantee you that he would be successful in that method. But anyway, the promise is that you would at least be able to uh, attain the, the basic and first degrees. But I can promise you that if you practice the way that I'm teaching you here, if you do it diligently, uh, and, and as a number of you here already have, and as uh, quite a number of other people have, you you will achieve the eighth, ninth, and then the tenth stages of this practice. You'll, you'll achieve samatha, and uh, also quite a few people will achieve the jhanas. Uh, any of any of you who get to the seventh or eighth stage, uh, I can I, I can show you how to achieve the light jhanas, and you'll be able to achieve the light jhanas from that. Um, and those who have uh, uh, a strong a strong enough interest in uh, uh, practicing and developing their concentration further will be able to go ahead and develop the deeper jhanas. It's just a level of concentration. Once you understand the jhanas, uh, what they are, and you've had the experience of them, um, and you learn to enter them, you learn to recognize the different ones and move 
through the different ones, then all you need to do is to further deepen your concentration, which by doing the jhanas themselves, you will deepen your concentration. I see. So, if you just keep doing jhana practice, your concentration gets better. Also, though, what's really important is that your mindful awareness becomes stronger as well. So that the tools that you need to to practice vipassana become uh, very powerful at the same time. So, yes. Um. I heard you, you praise greatly of this teacher, Vivekananda. Is that correct? Vivekananda is a, is a Mahasi tradition, tradition teacher. He is a wonderful teacher. He teaches only that tradition, and he is very, very narrowly focused. You know, and he, uh, he, it doesn't matter what other training you've had, you go on a, I went on a retreat with him. I hope to be able to go on a retreat with him again because um, I learned so much about the Mahasi method and I understand it so much better and I want to understand it still more. But And, and so I really hope he's coming back again this summer in August and I, I hope maybe I'll have the opportunity to spend a month practicing with him again. But he's going to teach this one particular way. You go to a meditation interview with him. He listens for particular words that are specific to that method. And it doesn't matter what else you experience or what else you do or what else you say. <laughs> it sounds very much like Mahasi style. Yeah, it, 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 well, it is, it is Mahasi style. Yeah, that's exactly I experienced in our retreat center back in San Jose. Yes, well... <laughs> so I think we should maybe, jump around practicing different styles. We should stick with one until we practice. Well, you, you should achieve mastery in, in one style. And then once you've achieved mastery, of course you can start expanding your repertoire. You know. Don't jump around. Once you're really good at the piano, you know, uh-huh. you could try playing some other instruments as well. Right. right. You'll be foolish yeah. to jump around. Yes, but to jump around before before you've achieved a level of mastery uh, is it, it, it's not going to be that helpful. It could be a great problem. Because I was really tempted in signing up that one month retreat in the summer. I was like, because I heard you said so many great things about him. Well, Vita Kananda is, he is a very good teacher. And um, someone like yourself, I don't know, my gut feeling is that at least where you're at right now, you're better to continue practicing where you are. But I could see that at some point in the not-too-distant future that you would be ready, you would be solid enough in not just your practice, but your understanding of the nature of the practice in general and, and, and of your own mind, that you would certainly be ready to go to another excellent teacher like that and practice in, in, that, in that method. Uh, and there are ad- advantages to, to doing that. You learn a lot more by getting a different perspective. I see but, yeah, it seems that the Mahasi teachers uh, are, I, I suppose it's a part of their training, is that it's, it is a, it's a very strict, uh, with no variation, and they don't like concentration, too much concentration. They really don't like joy and happiness. <laughs> they, 
<laughs> they expect you to have pain in your meditation. And they'll ask you in your interview, so tell me about the pain. What if there's no pain? And, well, and, and this was with... Except for like four hours, maybe I'll... I'll with Vivekananda, you know. I, I, I went to interview over and over again in interviews. He, he'd say, tell me about the pain. Well, after the first few interviews, he gave up. Oh, yeah, there's, there's no pain. <laughs> uh, he said, you, you, you've done too, too much jhana. <laughs> the problem is you've done too much jhana. And I had another one of my students, a very advanced student, very good, when she went to Lumbini and practiced with Vita Kananda. And the same thing, you know, he wanted her to have pain. Where's your pain? <laughs> and, and the joy, you know, you say, well, I, I'm going to experience a... Uh, because you're asked questions. What, tell me about your meditation. Same with Monte Kipopanyam. So you, you say, uh, you know, you say, uh, well, I, I, I'm experiencing a strong concentration, a strong joy, a pleasure in your body. <laughs> Well, you shouldn't stop doing that. And you shouldn't do that. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a method. So what, what's the idea behind that? You keep asking for the pain? Um, well, the, the idea is that uh, through observing the pain, uh, it, it helps you to understand impermanence, of course, but it also helps you to understand dissatisfactoriness, dukkha. Right? So, what in that training, they, they want you to experience the pain and then they tell you to meditate on the pain. And then describe to me what happened when you meditated on the pain. And they'll keep directing you to do that because they're waiting for you to tell them that at some point that they realize the pain is just a whole series of sensations arising and passing away, and the pain is not one thing. That it's impermanent, it's a flux. Uh, and then there are, they're also wanting you to understand that, well, this is, the nature, this is the nature of existence. It's filled with pain. Even sitting still causes pain. Well, the, the monk told me, that's a, remember I told you, that's a pleasant pain. Yeah. Yes. To look forward to the, the pain as a meditation object. And, and, you know, I don't fault that, because I'll tell you the same thing. When pain comes, meditate on it. I will tell you that you will come to the point beyond pain. And if you haven't learned what you can from that physical pain, then you're going... To, then there's a, there's a part of your training that you've missed out on. You need to understand the nature of pain by meditating on it. What about understanding the mental pain? I think that's a good me- uh, observation object. Yes, that's a very important meditation object. And that also comes up in a very strong way in, in, the, uh, in the dry insight training. There are a, it's described as a series of knowledges, you know, knowledge of uh, arising and passing away knowledge of dissolution, and then comes the knowledge of uh, the knowledge of misery and uh, the knowledge of uh, disgust and uh, uh, the uh, uh, knowledge of disenchantment, or, or the different words are used at different times. But there are the cause three. of it, the cause of it, you can see the cause of it, mm-hmm. right? Well, the three, the three, these three, 
knowledges, they're really they're actually one. There are three stages of understanding more and more deeply, uh, deeper stages of insight. And they're very, very important insights. But the nature of them is that you're doing a practice in which there is not, uh, there's no piti sukha, there's no, uh, the, there's, the mind is not in a state of joy and happiness. And uh, the other thing is that there is, uh, at this stage, a very little equilibrium. And you have yet to really overcome at all your sense of self. And so as you begin to have insight into impermanence, and uh, as, you, as you see that, that all of these things in my life appear to be substantial, they appear to be permanent, they appear to be real, and they are just passing away, and not, there is nothing to cling to. And that feeling that there is, is nothing to hold on to, and even my own self is, a, is an impermanent and uh, transient experience. And so there is an experience of misery. It's like, oh, this is horrible. This is all there is to life. It's just suffering, impermanence, and, and, and even my own precious self is, uh, is without any substance and basis. And, and that's... That's mental suffering. Genuine mental suffering. Very strong. Very strong. You learn you learn that you gain insight into uh, suffering in that way. But but that sounds like the first truth, right? It is. It is the first truth. And it's a very powerful method. And the meditator who comes to the stage of having insight into uh, impermanence and uh, the illusoriness of the self and suffering in this way. These are very, very powerful insights. They're not liberating insights. At that stage, they're misery-making insights. And these are also called the rolling up the mat stage, because what happens with some yogis is, well, the worst thing that can happen is their retreat ends, and they go back to the world, and everything in their life just seems pointless and meaningless now. It's like they've had insight into impermanence, and, and, and uh, dukkha and, and uh, selflessness and it's terrible they really, they really need to go back into retreat soon or go for therapy or something like that but sometimes what happens is, is the rolling up the mat stage because sometimes I can't take this anymore I'm not going to meditate anymore uh, they uh, go out and they get drunk and they party and they eat and they uh, uh, find lots of girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever their inclination is and they just want to forget all about it. But if they don't do that, then the only thing they can do with this insight is to reflect, come to the conclusion that, well, my only hope is to keep up the practice and to succeed. It's a very, very powerful method and it does work. And so they come to this stage of determination. They refocus their attention back on the arising and passing away. And their mind calms down. And they enter samatha. And they become tranquil. And they develop equanimity. The equanimity is very important because before they were in the state of horrible suffering. But now they have equanimity towards this. 
and they're in samatha, and it's from the state of samatha, with the benefit of these insights and the power of this equanimity, that they achieve enlightenment. They achieve the first stage of enlightenment. So, so they, they skip meditative joy? <clears throat> uh, well, they go through... Meditative joy actually arises in uh, a particular stage. It's uh, uh, The fourth knowledge is called the uh, knowledge of what is and is not the path. And in this particular method, the meditator will experience the sudden occurrence of meditative joy. And uh, they are then instructed in the meditation interview to let go of that and get past that. The way the practice is done, with the constant uh, noting, 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 labeling, 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 the mind is not able to stay in the state of unification that's necessary for meditative joy. And so if they go back to noting and labeling, noting and labeling, the joy goes away. And the uh, and then the meditation teacher says, says, very good. Now you've passed to the next stage, which is called the mature stage of arising and passing away. Right? So they, they do experience meditative joy, but they're taught to drop it, to leave it behind and to continue with uh, the practice. That's why I dropped them. Did you 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 have the state of uh, of pity, meditative joy arise? When I told them that I have the joy, Mm -hmm. they ignore me, they want me to go back noting. Right. And I get uh, pretty uh, agitated. Yeah, that is, is for the teacher, that's the correct instruction. So I pack my thing and I Ignore it. Ignore the joy and go back to noting. That's exactly what they're supposed to tell. Did you have that experience? Yeah, we went to the same center. Yeah, they, they didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, three of us. <laughs> that's how we met Sophia. As a beginner, she benefited a lot, mm-hmm. like uh, walking meditation, mind wandering. Yes. Um, mindfulness. Huh? Mindfulness. 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 About mindfulness. Well, see, that's that's the thing. The whole training up to that point is really developing concentration. <laughs> Although they deny it. They say, you know, they, they, they say, well, this is the, not really concentration. Yeah, I have to say, to be fair, we both got benefit. Mm-hmm. Because we have that training, so when we drop them to uh, to practice uh, uh, anapanasati, mm-hmm. we both, you know, right. yeah, So the second time she went there, she was just watching a uh, uh, sensation of breathing. Mm-hmm. She she cheated yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. In an uh, interview time, I tell the Seattle. Uh, one sitting meditation period, um, I cannot concentrate good, so I play with my pen 
and she was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you will notice, though, if you uh, you look at these different meditation methods, and although they're presented as though they're very, very different methods. You're doing the same things in, in all of them. Yeah, I think yeah. that the one key ingredient that's missing was, for me, was the, the joy and the happiness in yeah. meditation. Mm-hmm. And it made me uh, a bigger control freak, <laughs> even bigger one than I went in. I came out really, really very controlling, very serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, enlightenment is what I want. Mm-hmm. That's it. The hell is everything. Well, that's else. good. Good for that. Good for that training. <laughs> <laughs> but in a very joyless, it cannot be sustained. That kind of, for me, it can just. Uh, it's not real. Single-mindedness is, is cannot be sustained. That She's not happy yeah. with her real life. Mm-hmm. And stop, stop speaking. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, she's like my little sister. She couldn't yeah. resist. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay, so uh, yeah, we've had an interesting discussion. Any other comments or anything anybody else wants to to raise with regard to these things that we've talked about? I have a question. Yes. Um, how come when you reach a stage of meditation, you feel like, I don't know what this is, but like coming home to your, more of your real mind? It feels like coming home. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I I have not I didn't have, have this feeling right now, but a long time ago, like when I felt really blissful, peaceful, joyful, and um, and in the moment, mm-hmm. like it feels like coming home to more of my real mind. Well, you know, that's because that's what you're doing. When you stop all of that, uh, when you get, when you stop all of that disturbing activity of, of your mind and all those false ideas that that uh, are making you miserable. Yeah, it's like coming to a place of peace, home at last. Yeah, yeah take yeah. a rest. So, yeah. Yes. Any comments about the, the, the Kongwan practice? I, I just cannot figure out how I practice the Kongwan, the, the Chan, the Chan, the Chan practice. I, I, the Kongwan, Kongwan. Kongwan. Oh, Chinese Zen, Chinese Zen. Kongwan. Kongwan. I don't know. Honey, the, 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 the oh, Chinese the, uh, Zen. Uh, so is that, Chinese okay, there's, there's two Japanese Zens. There's the Shikantaza and the Koan. Is this Koan? Koan. Oh, Koan. Koan. Okay, Koan. Okay. Uh, taking a, a, a Koan, it's basically, uh, I've never practiced it, but <laughs> you, take, uh, you take a question or a series of questions as as a focus that it's impossible to uh, adequately answer using logic and rational thinking. 
and you just let your mind keep attacking the same problem over and over again until that logical, linear, left-brain part of your mind just gives up and quits. So you have sort of a... uh, You know, uh, if you read descriptions of uh, uh, Zen uh, adepts who describe their enlightenment experience, it's very much like the description of what... uh, uh, Dr. Taylor uh, described following her stroke. And uh, I noticed that right away, uh, reading her account of the stroke, and I was immediately struck by the fact that in the koan practice, what you're essentially doing is defeating the left side of the brain that wants to find a rational, structured, logical way of resolving the koan. And when it finally quits, it not only quits trying to solve the koan, it quits, it quits presenting the world as a, a, a uh, as a composite of discrete structures. And so, uh, if uh, if you read an account of, uh, of someone who has this experience, this satori, you know, they have a sense of being uh, in perfect harmony with everything and looking out the window and the tree they see is the most perfect, beautiful tree that uh, ever could possibly be. And the present moment is, is absolutely perfect and, you know, very much the same kinds of descriptions that, uh, uh, the, that Dr. Taylor had when the stroke ceased the functioning of her left brain. But as much as I know about the practice is that it can... Uh, it, it, it involves a, a series of koans. If you know, if uh, if you feel like you understand a koan enough that it's no longer driving you crazy, then your teacher has to give you a new one that will that will continue the challenge until that happens. And how can they attain the concentration? It's kind of mind, mind wandering about. It, well, they're not they're not sitting down to deliberately concentrate develop concentration for its own sake. But if you sit down to hold a koan in your mind, you're going to have the experience of forgetting what you're doing and you're going to have to bring it back. And if you if you spend long enough bringing your attention back to the koan every time it wanders, you're going to train the mind not to wander. And of course, the koan is going to engage your logical, rational thinking processes so uh, my guess is that initially at least, initially at least, you probably find it easier to stay on the koan for a long time than you would something like the sensations of the breath. But then likewise, the same thing. You're thinking about the puzzle. There's other, there's other thoughts arising in your mind. So uh, the only way that you can really practice, I mean, you can, you can goof off and let the other thoughts be there, or you can keep bringing your attention back from those thoughts to the koan. If you do that, you're developing concentration in exactly the way that I teach you, and in exactly the way that you would develop concentration in the Mahasi method. You know, you label the rising and falling, and then your mind wanders, and you say, thinking, thinking, and you go back to the rising and falling. <laughs> you know, it's, they all come down to the same thing, you know, ultimately. So. 
just just different. Uh, yeah. yeah. Different personality or background or training do different things. The different objects in terms of what you're focusing your attention on, and then different uh, theoretical descriptions of the process that you're going through. And I I describe the process more in psychological terms. I say you forget the meditation object which causes your mind to wander. So then when you remember, be happy about that and reinforce it and then bring your mind back. So I'm I'm putting it in clear psychological terms, whereas another teacher and another teaching doesn't give you that description. They just say, label it thinking, thinking, or label it hearing, hearing, or, or whatever it is and then come back. But the basic process that you're carrying out is the same, no matter what. And I don't know what the instruction from a teacher of Kungan or Koan would be, whether they, but it's got to, it's got to take the form that when you realize that you're not thinking about the Koan, bring your mind back to the Koan. Oh, I <laughs> so, see. I you know, see. It, it has to be. I see. Even if the teacher says nothing, and the, the student might sit there for five years, but sooner or later they'll figure out, I'll never solve this koan unless I bring my mind back to it every time I wonder. So, you know. <laughs> but but do, uh, what kind of message you, you are teaching? Do you have a name for your uh, style? It's, it's uh, you'd have to, I, I call it samatha vipassana. Samatha vipassana. Because... <laughs> in, because this is what I want you to want, want the student to come to in the end is to develop samatha while at the same time developing insight. So when they come okay. to the end, you know they have they have both, and and then they can become enlightened. But in terms of these other names, I mean, probably if I was going to choose uh, Anapanasati would be the most appropriate because after all it is a meditation on the breath and so so if I if I needed to put a label on it I'd probably call it Anapanasati Samatha Vipassana I do call it (laughs) I do call it Samatha Vipassana in in a flyer for a retreat or things like that I call it Samatha Vipassana is it because it's depicted in the uh, um, party canon, so you choose this method when your teacher you know, presents so many shushas on you? I, I'm sorry, I just had a Is it because uh, it's, uh, it's described in the party canon, so, so you, you select this method in the beginning when your teacher you know, gives you so many shushas uh, to reference? Why is the reason it, it's, uh, Well, uh, this, this particular training of uh, observing the sensations of the breath was what I got from my teacher and it was simply called Anapanasati and concentration training. You know. um, but um, it's basically what I'm teaching you except that you know, I've developed my own style and, and way of expressing it. The, the form that I learned it in was relatively simple, just a minimum number of instructions. Uh, and I had to do a whole lot of figuring it out on my own. So I thought that uh, <laughs> I'd try to make it easier for students by 
filling in as much of the details as I could. But you ultimately have to do it yourself, of course. Uh, how can you practice which? The meditation uh, sensing the presence of the whole body without the without the with the ignorance of the whole environment. How can I practice that? Should I should I practice that or should not? The awareness of sensations of the body. The while ignoring ignoring while ignoring the, the environment. The sounds of the Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there's. Uh, you can practice awareness of the body, and uh, ex- if you if you do the practice that I called experiencing the whole body with the breath, where you're trying to simultaneously be aware of of uh, all of the sensations in your body that occur corresponding to the breath. What will happen is your mind is so, it's such a large task. It takes up so much of the, uh, of your awareness that you cease to be aware of sounds while you're doing it. And virtually all thinking activity stops because basically it's, it's such a big job, your, your, your mind doesn't have any extra capacity to think a lot of thoughts or to listen to sounds or, or things like that. And it's a method for developing single-pointedness because if you do this, if you spend a certain amount of time uh, experiencing the whole body with the breath and then you come back to focus on your nose, what you'll find is that is extremely clear and sharp and that there are just no thoughts in your mind at all. And so you sustain that for as long as you can, and at some point you start to become aware of sounds and and the thoughts start to come again. When that happens, you go back and repeat the process. And by doing it, it is a very powerful method that I haven't taught you here yet, but for for achieving single-pointedness. It's also a very powerful method for achieving a very high level of mindful awareness and not just preventing dullness but actually increasing the level of mindful awareness because the power of your mindfulness has to be very high to uh, if you take as your goal to feel the sensations uh, of the breath in in the entire body with as much clarity as you previously felt them in this small area you have to have a very powerful mindfulness um, is it that so when the sense of the whole body becomes so much perf- uh, there's not a diversity of sense in your inside body that you begin so basically concentrate on the whole senses that you can easily forget the whole environment yes that's right you can forget environmental sensations yes and, and also in, in the practice that I'm talking about we could I don't know if this is what you mean by environmental sensation, but I would include in this as environmental sensations. You're sitting down, so this, the pressure of your body against the cushion 
and there's a sensation of your clothing against your skin. And I would include that as environmental sensations because in the practice that I'm talking about, you put your you put your attention in one area after another and you notice all of the sensations that are present and then you focus on only those sensations that change with the breath. So if you put your if you put your awareness on your buttocks, for example, right now, close your eyes, put your, you know, you feel the pressure, you feel all kinds of different sensations there. But now, if you examine very carefully and find, well, what sensation is there that's changing as I breathe in and out? You know? And you identify that. And then you focus on it very clearly, and so you follow the breath in those sensations. In doing that, I cease to be aware of the pressure sensations and things like that. So by practicing in this way, that uh, you come to a point where you're really very, very clearly aware of sensations in your body, but not of all bodily sensations, only the ones that uh, are related to the uh, cycle of the in and the out breath. If not, uh, perhaps tomorrow I'll teach you this method. Just a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Around fingertips, like certain parts, the blood vessel, the sensation of the blood vessel is much stronger than, yeah. than the breast. But, um, so, I'm just wondering it would be just overdrawn by the blood vessel's sensation. No, because what happens, you may perhaps in your hands have the, the pulsation feeling of the blood. Uh, but if you search and are able to find a sensation that is not pulsating like that, but is going... Oh, you're killing to a different frequency. You're turning into a different frequency. So you'll disregard the one in favor of the other. So... Uh, I can see that for some of you, this practice I'm talking about would be a good one to teach, and for some of you, you might not be ready for it yet, but I think I'll probably teach it, uh, teach it to you tomorrow, and, and you'll have it in your repertoire to use in the future, even if you feel like you're not ready for it yet. Yes? Sometimes I feel the, the sound of the silence. When the environment is really quiet, mm-hmm. there's a sound of silence. And sometimes I just attract by the silence and concentrate on that part. That's quiet also effective. Yes, you become, when you're meditating, you become very, very aware of uh, even uh, subtle things like what you would call the sound of silence. But the sound, the sound of a silent environment is actually a sound. And as your concentration deepens, uh, Many people experience that sound becoming very, very strong. Uh, more so, that, I, mean, I mean, you could ask yourself, well, what is that sound? Is that the sound of, of the blood rushing through my blood vessels? You know, or is that some ringing in my ears from uh, tinnitus or things like that? But there is a sound that develops uh, in some people that's very strong and is clearly not of a normal physical origin. It's, it's actually produced by the mind. 
So there's there's the sound of silence, which I would say is truly the sound that you hear when the mind is focused and, and you're silent. But beyond that, there's something else that is sometimes referred to as a sound of silence, which is uh, a sound that is uh, produced by the mind and is a part of concentration. And this, this is very much the same thing as with your eyes closed, you'll see a light. A light that's produced by the mind. It's completely mentally produced light. It doesn't come from anything else. So. Is, is anybody used that song as a, as a, as a object? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, there are, uh, uh, some people teach uh, uh, both of these as objects. They call them sound and light meditations. And so they develop concentration to the point that the sound occurs and that the light appears and they take the sound and light as meditation objects. So uh, I don't know of any Buddhist teachers who use uh, sound as a meditation object. But people in uh, more uh, like a yoga tradition often use uh, the, that inner sound. Not in Zen? What's that? Not in, Zen, in certain Zen traditions. Um... Perhaps, yeah, I'm not really familiar with those. But... So the, the light you said, it's, when we close the eye, actually, sometimes we feel some part is kind of brighter than yes. the other part. But it's because maybe the environment, the light. Yes, and, and naturally, like uh, if you're if there's a strong illumination there, and you close your eyes, you will be aware things are lighter in one area. But there is a, a, a light that develops that has absolutely nothing to do with any external source. Um, often it'll start off as a as a pinpoint, and grow larger, or maybe it'll grow and, and retract. Sometimes it will come and go. Eventually, as it keeps developing it becomes uh, what's called the all-pervading light. Because rather than just being a, a circumscribed spot of light or area of light, it seems to come from everywhere. It seems to be everywhere simultaneously. And it becomes very bright, too. And is it more than probably it's the mind's creation? It's the yeah. project this way. It is a creation of the mind. And as a matter of fact, See, to enter deep jhanas, you need to find a meditation object that is not related to the senses. And in the method that Ajahn Brahma Lamso teaches, as soon as this light appears, he has his students take that as their meditation object, take that, that mind-created light. And because it's not related to the senses, uh, it's a suitable object for uh, entering a deep jhana. I I read about some other uh, experiments in for the origin of the lights in meditation. Uh-huh. This because uh, the conversion between the the energy and the cellular body or the or the neuron neuron fiber mm-hmm. that we know that the electricity uh, is conversion with the the electric wire yeah. that, that cause no no no. no. Uh, because the conversion of elasticity with the fiber of the, the light mm-hmm. that brings the light. Yes. Same thing happened during meditation because when, when the energy is converting to neuron fiber that brings the sense of light. Yeah, I, I sense that before. It's like light's training, you know, I, I feel the nerves firing. 
Uh-huh. And then you see a bunch of different color lights. And it definitely has to do with energy because the energy travels there yeah. and it just fires up like crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, I have, I have no doubt that... Uh, I mean, this is an extremely consistent phenomenon across huge numbers of people and different meditation techniques. And so uh, I, I fully expect that one of these days somebody's going to be able to do measurements in a laboratory and say exactly what parts of the... What, which nerves, which parts of the brain are are involved in this process. So, so, so are, are these two separate things? One is mind-created light, and the other one is just the nurse firing. No, they're, they're, this, uh, they're the same thing. I think at this level, I would not distinguish between mind and, and, and brain. You know, so... Uh, I, I, we call it a mind-created light because it has absolutely nothing to do with physical light affecting the retina of the eye. But, um, but I, I'm sure that we'll find it has neurological correlates. That there's neurological structures that are directly correlated with the occurrence of this light. And uh, so whether you call it mind-created or brain-created will become more your philosophical point of view. Does the mind create it and then it uses the brain to manifest it? Or does the brain create it and that which is created by the brain we call it the mind? <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. That's a philosophical question. So. But just want to tell you, we offer you the water right next to you at your right oh, side. Oh, well, oh, I thought that was for the Buddha. <laughs> Yes. For you. <laughs> I, was, I, I, I did. I thought that, but I also wondered why it was covered. And then because I thought, to well, po- to make it uh, to protect, make it clean, that yeah, no insect well, fell in okay. or dust inside. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me know that. I I, I, I did. You. I thought perhaps uh, the flowers are really beautiful <laughs> and the Buddha's there. And I thought it's it's wonderful that as an offering, you know, <laughs> it's for you. Uh, I, I I meant to tell you in the beginning, but I saw you holding your own drink, uh, so I postponed. I figured that your water probably already gone, so. Well, you're right. It is so. Uh, so I tell you, there's a more water for you. Okay. Well, that's thoughtful, and I appreciate it, and. Uh, I'm happy that the Buddha will share. <laughs> <laughs> From now on, uh, I will always put a glass of water there for you. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Does, uh, yes? Uh, it's too personal. Uh, yesterday, I did an organization one night, and after that, I walked in, uh, I uh, watched the sky, the, yes. blue, the blue sky. And suddenly I see the, uh, the small the dots, these gold dots. It's like a golden. Mm-hmm. So is it common because we calm down or just like just my intuition? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, but when, when I try to watch the, the trees, there's no this kind of thing. The small, very small duck jumping around. It's very small. I, <clears throat> I, I don't know for sure, but. I think more than anything else, it's a reflection of 
the fact that uh, you are in a very high state of mindful awareness. I don't believe so. <laughs> I'm wondering. Yeah. But, uh, you know, whether, whether, those, uh, whether those little dots, maybe they're there all the time and you just notice them now yeah. or... So, I, I, I don't really know the answer. But of course, it's the kind of thing that when you're busy uh, thinking about things while you're looking, and uh, uh, you just wouldn't be aware of something. <laughs> anyway. I do have a lot of dark food. Yeah, very small. I don't know what mm. that is. Like a small snack. Not snack. No. So how did we get started talking about this tonight? We, we, I, I can't remember where we began. Started from sex. Start from sex. <laughs> Last. Everything starts with sex. That's all here, right? But it's interesting, though. We learn a lot. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been an interesting discussion for my part, and uh, I'm glad that it's helpful to you. Um, anything else? That uh, any any last questions? So we've got three minutes to bedtime. <laughs> What's that? Oh, Sophia. Oh, Sophia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, we can feel the wave of the sun. Mm-hmm. It's a, like a sensation in the body. Mm-hmm. Is it a mindful? Because the mindful is concentration. The, the the fact that you're aware of that sensation and otherwise wouldn't be is the result of your mindfulness. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it could be a feel uncomfortable. It could be uncomfortable? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think she was just checking to see the yeah. <laughs> Is it outside sound or inner sound? I mean uh, your the sound what? you think about the sound mm-hmm. Because sound is actually vibration of the ear. You can sense the vibration of the ear touching your skin. Mm-hmm. That's why <clears throat> Yeah, you know how uh, convection currents of air, as the air heats up and it rises as it as it moves, and and you probably are feeling convection currents on the skin. So, do do you know what I mean by convection currents? Yeah. Sorry. You can feel that too between your hands. You you can you can feel the movement of air between your hands, sometimes more easily than others, but... (laughs) Okay.
Well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.